This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So today Downing Street has put its full support behind Gavin Williamson as a minister for the cabinet office. This comes after some revelations of messages that he had sent to the then chief whip, Wendy Morton. Isabel, tell us about what's going on in this row. Well, I think Gavin Williamson is is a minister who's had more Downing Streets say they have full confidence in than any other member of the government. Given his tenure as education secretary and obviously uh, previous incarnation as chief whip, there have been one or two ups and downs for Williamson in his career to date. And the latest one is, uh, well, there's two complaints. One is a complaint made by Wendy Morton, former chief whip under Liz Truss. He was texting her complaining that he hadn't been invited to the Queen's funeral and was making what is being described as sort of veiled threats saying there's, you know, there's a price for everything and uh, telling her that she wasn't doing her job very well. Now, he was not the only person at the time who was saying that Wendy Morton was not doing her job particularly well. But to couple it with what is essentially a, the hissy fit of a grown up man about not being invited to something that's nothing to do with him and sort of, you know, threatening her about consequences for that in her job is if not bullying, deeply unprofessional and childish, frankly. And then there's a second complaint, which is that uh, from another uh, female minister uh, who says that he made veiled threats about a sensitive matter in her personal life. His allies have said that he actually, this was when he was chief whip, raised this sensitive matter as a sort of pastoral concern because somewhat unbelievably, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, as well as trying to twist people's arms and make them vote for things, the whips do also have a pastoral role. With some chief whips, it's easier to see how they're able to fulfil that than perhaps it was with Gavin Williamson, who was always very much an arm twister. And so this is being added to the sort of the weight of the case against Gavin Williamson. Now, James, do you think there's more that's going to come out when it comes to this Gavin Williamson story? Because he is a character that has a little bit of a reputation for this kind of stuff, not least because he used to be chief whip when part of it is the job in order to, you know, get people in line. So one would think if someone were out there to get Gavin Williamson and in turn Rishi Sunak, they would have a lot more ammo. Yeah, I look, I think whoever leaked this to the Sunday papers, I mean, I think, I mean, it was, you know, sometimes there was a leak which people think that in and of itself that is, that is enough to force someone out. Other times things I think are leaked in an attempt to kind of try and get a, to get momentum going for a story. I think this is, this is more of the latter on the basis that, you know, those texts, they're obviously not particularly edifying, but they're also not, they're also not a kind of open and shut case of, oh, my word, you can't say that and be a minister of a crown. So I think that that is the question. I mean, there is a very I think Isabel raises an interesting question, which is the perennial question that in Westminster, which is, you know, the whip's office exists in this very, very odd place. And one of the oddest features of politics, I suppose, now, which is, you know, is it the HR department or is it the regimental sergeant major meant to get everyone in line and, and voting with the government. And I mean, that, that tension has 
existed and, and exists more. I thought it was very. I, I thought it was another actually very interesting piece in the Sunday Times about how to touch on one of Isabel's specialist subjects about how MPs are becoming more local and therefore party discipline is harder to maintain because if people represent the community that they grew up in, they're probably less likely to be biddable. And making the point about the fracking vote, that one of the things that was happening there was that this, this felt very personal to, to several of the Tory MPs who said that they, they, they couldn't go along with, with, with the position as outlined by the then chief whip, Wendy Morton. So I think that that tension still exists in Westminster. And as long as governments have to get their business through the House of Commons, I think they will probably want a whips office that can deliver that, which then raises the question as to whether somebody else needs to have the kind of the, the kind of pastoral care HR function mm. separate from from the people in charge of getting the government's business through the Commons. Just going on to the sort of the impact on the current government, because I guess this question about separating out the pastoral roles and the, the arm twisting roles has, has been going on for a while. But I think one of the things it shows is that the party unity that was being proclaimed in the hours after Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister was never going to last for more than, well, a few hours, a few days. And we're already starting to see personal fights, factional fights and so on. And obviously, this is something that the opposition parties are immediately seizing on as a sign that the Conservatives are still not just divided, but having to focus endlessly on internal issues, whether it's, you know, the behaviour of of a serving minister, Gavin Williamson, whether it is the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, which we're obviously going to come on to, I suspect, in this podcast, rather than the matters that matter to the country. Mm -hmm. And Isabel, speaking of non-biddable MPs talking about the local issues, um, Sir Roger Gale has become a very vocal champion of rights of migrants, especially because in his constituency is the Manston Holding Centre. Tell us about his latest urgent question. So he's got an urgent question in the House of Commons this afternoon, which is about whether the backlogs in processing people at Manston and the overcrowding at that centre have been in any way improved since the discussion of it in the Commons last week. And he's also asking if she will make a statement on safeguarding provisions for minors in hotel accommodation for asylum seekers. So there's lots of issues here, obviously, for Suella Braverman, that the thing she will want to focus on is the sort of the tough line on the boats crossing the channel. And, you know, it's illegal to come to this country crossing in a small boat. The thing that Roger Gale and a number of opposition figures will want to focus on is the conditions, the ongoing conditions at Manston and also the use of hotel accommodation because this is, well, it's very expensive for the taxpayer. It's also really inappropriate, particularly for for minors and and vulnerable um, asylum seekers, which is what Roger Gale's uh, referring to. But it is the thing that if you talk to any MP, it winds their constituents up no end. The idea that asylum seekers are being housed in hotels and some of them, some of these hotels are surprisingly lovely. The wedding venue that one of my friends had is now being used for asylum seekers. Some of them are actually really quite grim and not the sort of luxury spa experience that is becoming part of the popular imagination. But either way, it's something that really winds people up. And that's one of the political reasons why Sorella Braverman was cancelling the bookings of these hotel rooms and uh, other Home Secretaries have taken very different approaches. So it's politically very fraught once you get beyond the the sort of primary colours of this issue, which is where Suella Braverman 
being the sort of politician she is, prefers to stay. And James, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is out of the country today. He's in Egypt for COP27. What is he hoping to get out of this trip? Because it's not one that he initially wanted to make. So I, I think the kind of reason for the U-turn essentially is that it's not just that various world leaders who are going, but also the UK has just handed over the presidency from COP26, which was held in Glasgow, to COP27, which has been held in Egypt. And I think there's, I think there was a kind of feeling that you know that was a particular reason for the UK to go. I think also one of the striking things when you look at, you know, he's obviously doing a bunch of climate-related stuff today, but it's also interesting from the bilaterals that he's been having with other people, most notably Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, but he is also discussing other issues mm. that are of concern to the UK, for example, you know, the readout from Downing Street says that Sunak and von der Leyen discussed the Northern Ireland Protocol. There's expected to be a meeting with Emmanuel Macron at some point in the margins. Again, will that range beyond just climate-related issues to, to other questions such as small boats? So I think what you can see is that you can see that, you know, that, that these summits are you know, not only is it an attempt to say that the UK, the UK position on climate change and isn't going to shift with this third prime minister in a year. I mean, there is a, I mean, actually considering the sheer amount of churn, one of the things the UK is going to have to do is to go out of its way to reassure its partner countries that, you know, actually, yes, we've had three prime ministers this year, but, but, the, but this policy or that policy hasn't actually changed. People, are, I think, are understandably concerned and confused about it. And then also, you know, obviously, these, this is a time to, you know, uh, to see face-to-face people for the first time as prime minister. And, Yes, there is the G20 later in the month in Indonesia. But I mean, that is going to be very much dominated by, you know, the fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the whole question of whether President Putin goes or not. The Indonesians have been indicating today that they think he probably won't. President Xi is expected to go. I think that will be, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think that's yeah. his first visit outside China. No, sorry, second, second. second visit outside China. He went to that Central Asian thing. Yeah. So, only Xi's second. And obviously, at a time of significantly increased US-China tensions. So I think there is a kind of value to, to be in that. And I think there is also a value to be known in that these debates about climate change, this is, this, I think this is going to be a particularly fraught COP mm. because loss and damage is on the agenda, which essentially is this argument that you hear made um, most noticeably by Pakistan, which is, hang on a second, we are suffering from the effects of climate change, which are right. essentially co- not caused by us, caused by Western industrialization in inverted commas. And there's this whole debate about you know, reparations and the like. I think the reparations framing is a bad way of looking at it. I think there is a better way of looking at it, which is that the West should be aiming to share the technologies... But it is the reason that the West has, to a greater extent, I mean, than anyone would have thought possible a generation or two ago, has managed to decouple economic growth from carbon, from fossil fuels. But I, I mean, the West has, I mean, the West, I think it is in the West's interest to share the technology that it is using to do that in a non-commercial way with those big emitting countries. You know, think of South Africa, Indonesia, India, because I think that you know that is. That is a better way of looking at this debate rather than trying to go backwards and forwards and debate whether the Industrial Revolution was a good thing or a bad thing. Isabel and James, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening.